You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You truly are the delight of our hearts, and we thank you for that. We thank you for making us your own through Christ. We do ask your blessing upon this time and our fellowship, our, our worship of you today. We ask that our time here would be spent profitably, that you would be glorified through uh, what is said here and the things that we consider. May you be honored here by your people, and that you would receive glory from us. That is our desire, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, one of the challenges of teaching... Just one lesson is that you can't get started on a series of things. You can't, like, introduce something that you want to do. So it's always difficult to try and pick one thing to just fill in with somebody. So uh, that got me thinking about a question that was asked by somebody of me recently, and it was Thomas. So today's Sunday School lesson, to you, lesson is brought to you by the, le- by the letter T. <laughs> by the letter T from Thomas. So the question was, he said, I, w- I would like to have a class or a Sunday School lesson or something do you remember this question? On the subject of what goes into preparing a sermon. Did I get that question right? Remembered it right? Okay. Because I want to make sure that I actually prepared a lesson. I'm going to go with the what goes into what goes into preparing a sermon, into the preparation of a sermon. And I think there are a number of reasons why it's beneficial for uh, people who don't prepare a sermon weekly or maybe have never prepared a sermon or a Bible study lesson to know a little bit of the process that goes into it. And not because I want you to appreciate the work that I do or Tim does or Jess or Dave or anybody else, Brian, anybody else that stands up here and teaches. But I think that if if you know something about the process of how something is created, you will have some idea of what the end product should look like. So if I describe to you a process, and I'm going to take uh, some dough that will rise, I'm going to lay it out real uh, flat in a in a circle, and I'm going to put some tomato sauce on that and sprinkle some sausage on that and some peppers, some mushrooms, some olives, some onions, sprinkle some cheese over top and put it in the oven and bake it for four, at 450 degrees for uh, 15 minutes. You would have some idea, having understood the process of what goes into it, what that final product should look like, right? A donut, right. So if I pull a donut out of the oven, you would say to yourself, he did not follow the process to create this because a certain process creates a certain product. So even if you've never prepared a sermon, there is a benefit, I think, of knowing the process of what goes into it, because as folks who listen to sermons regularly, uh, sometimes you can sit and listen to one man speak for 40 minutes, and you say to yourself, i.e., that wasn't preaching, that wasn't a message, I don't know what's wrong with it, but that was not what it should have been. And you can listen to somebody else preach for 40 minutes and say, I understood that, I heard God speak in his passage of scripture, and I understand now what I am to do in response to that. There is two totally different processes that end up with those two totally different products. So we're going to talk today about the process of creating a sermon. So if you have questions about any of these items as we go through it, I want you to shoot your hand up and ask. And uh, if we have time at the end, we'll kind of get to some of the things that I'm skipping over. And keep in mind that as we go through this, any one of these, I mean, I've got two pages of notes kind of that I, I sketched out here just to remind me, not of what I need to do, but just to remind me of some things that I need to, go, areas that I need to cover. Um, any one of these things could take an entire Sunday school class in itself to really flesh out the do's and the don'ts and the how's and the how's nots to these things, okay? So step one would be to go to sermondownloads.com. I'm kidding. You don't do that. We're going to talk briefly about that for just a second, though. 
What's that? Is this something you learned in Bible college? The question is, is this something I learned in Bible college or something I've generated as I've gone along? That's kind of an interesting um, thing. The, the answer to that question is, is yes and no. Yes, I did this, learn this in Bible college, but no, I was not paying attention to that in Bible college because I didn't ever think I would preach when I was in Bible college. I didn't go to Bible college to learn how to preach. So preaching class, I did the bare minimum. I regurgitated the stuff and I got through it. And I did what I had to get a passing grade so that I could focus my attention on other things. Then when I was asked to start pastoring or preaching, I started grabbing every book that I could get on the subject of preaching and going back to school and learning myself. But I had enough of the sort of the stuff lingering in my brain from Bible college that I was able to kind of pick through that and re- realize, okay, so this is what they meant and this is what we're talking about and kind of refresher. So yes and no. So what I am going to give to you is, uh, uh, well, so let's turn first. I, I want to read, I want to turn to a familiar passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, before we get into the, get into the meat of this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And the first four verses, actually, this whole passage beginning at verse 15 of chapter 3 is, um, or 14 of chapter 3, is a familiar passage, familiar verses. And I want you to read this, this passage without the chapter break there. So I want you to imagine, I want you to eyes to block out the number 4 and the beginning of chapter 4 with verse 1. And I want to read from chapter 3, verse 14. Speaking to Timothy, Paul says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, and this is talking about the Scriptures, the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So that's Paul's charge to Timothy. This is the very last letter that Paul wrote. Um, probably he uh, was executed before Timothy even got this letter. It's very very likely, actually. Um, this is Paul's final charge to Timothy, his, the closing words of an apostle in the closing days of his life, and he charges Timothy to teach the, preach the word. But that command to preach the word in verses 1 and 2 is connected theologically to the truth that's stated at the end of chapter 3, and that is that all Scripture is inspired by God. So th- th- preaching is, and this is something I have learned or um, really crystallized or, or clarified in my own mind, that preaching is primarily a theological enterprise. Preaching is not oratorial. It is theological. And everything about preaching, how it is done, the style that a man has in the pulpit, how he handles the word, um, everything about what I do, and I've reflected on stuff because I'm, I am my own best or worst critic. Everything I, I do on a Sunday morning, I evaluate in my own mind, and I have gone through everything that I do and what what how I preach, the way I preach, and it is all a product of my theology. It is because we believe, as elders in this church, because we believe that every word of God is inspired by God, therefore the words are important, the individual words. Because we believe that it's God's word, we believe that it needs to be treated and handled in such a way. So everything about how we handle Scripture, 
how we preach, how we handle the text, how we study, why we study. Um, and even a lot of the style of my preaching is tied to theological concerns. I wish I had more time to go into that, but I just want you to know, uh, it, sermon delivery is not primarily an oratorical, uh, 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 is that the right word? Oratorical? Or, oratorial enterprise. It's not pri- <laughs> I don't know what the word is there. <laughs> Obviously you're thankful for that, cause I, yeah, good thing it's not. Um, it, it is a theological enterprise. So how you preach, tells me everything about somebody's theology. So I've said before, I can listen to somebody preach one sermon, and I can tell you more about their theology than they can tell you about their theology, and not just because of what they say, the content of the sermon, what they say about a certain doctrine or topic, but how they handle Scripture, how they handle themselves in the pulpit, how they approach the text, how they deal with the text, and whether the text drives the sermon or not. I can tell you, they, they, they may say, I believe that this book is inspired by God, every word, every jot, every tittle. But if I can listen to him preach, and I can tell you whether he really believes that or not. He may say that up here, but I can tell you whether he really believes that in his heart of hearts, that, it, that every jot and tittle is inspired by God. So it's primarily a theological enterprise. So with that said, let me give you a couple of caveats. I'm not covering this subject because I think that I am a standard for preachers or for preaching. I hope you guys know that. I don't even think I'm a standard for preaching or preaching within this congregation. There are other people who sit here every week, Jess, Dave, Brian, Tim, and others who have preached um, uh, not only in our church but in other churches and have been in other churches as pastors. There are people who sit here every Sunday, and I have to feed and teach them. I don't believe that I am the standard and everybody should look to me. This is how it should be done, and this is the only way it should be done. I'm not covering this because I believe that I have arrived at some standard. Like I figured it out, and I've got the key, and so here I'm telling everybody else how they should have the, the key to this as well. And nor am I covering this because I believe myself to be a great speaker or a great orator or a great teacher or anything like that. I don't, I don't have any misconceptions about my own grandeur. Actually, I've said to people before, if, 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 um, you knew how, what I thought of my own sermons, you would wonder why I ever get up there on a Sunday morning. And truly that is the case. And I think that every preacher who has ever taught or preached can say that at some point, that Wow, if those people knew what I thought about what I just did, they would wonder how I would ever get up there the following Sunday. Because everybody deals with that issue that isn't a pulpit, or they should. Maybe not everybody does, but they should. Okay, so the steps to sermon preparation. Once again, go to DownloadSermons.com or SermonDownload.com. That's not it, actually, but along that vein, there was a Wall Street Journal article, and uh, Deidre didn't cut and paste the title of this, but it was in the Wall Street Journal. It was by Susan uh, Susan Stateline. This is an article, I think the article was titled something like, uh, the sermon you hear on Sunday might not be, uh, might not be, might come from the web. That's what it was. How, the sermon you hear on Sunday might come from the web. So there's a growing trend among pastors to not, um, not study the scripture and create a sermon, but to just download a sermon that's been preached by somebody else and then to go ahead and just preach it. So here's the, I'm going to read you just a couple of excerpts from the article. The Reverend Brian Moon says he has come up with ideas for his sermons after water skiing while watching My Name is Earl on TV and while working on his 1969 Buick muscle car. He also finds, by the way, if you're doing all those things, it's a wonder that you need to go to the web to find your sermon. He also finds inspiration on the Internet, as he did in August when he preached about God's math. Quote, people are drowning, drowning in their marriages, drowning in their careers, drowning in hurtful habits, Mr. Moon told his congregation at Church of the Sun Coast in Land Lakes, Florida. Quote, they need someone to rescue them and bring them on the raft. They need people driven by God's addition, end quote. Those words, it turns out, were first uttered three years ago by Reverend Ed Young, pastor of Fellowship Church in Grapevine, Texas. His website, creativepastors.com. Now, if that's not an Orwellian title, 
Think about that. Is there anything less creative than going to creativepastors.com to get your sermon from somebody else? The irony is, I mean, how do they not even see this? I don't even get it. Creativepastors.com sells transcripts of this and other sermons for $10 each. Mr. Moon says he delivered about 75% of Mr. Young's sermon just because it was really good. That included a whitewater rafting anecdote similar to Mr. Young's in the original. Mr. Moon, who has now been a pastor for seven months, didn't give credit to Mr. Young, and he makes no apologies for using a recycled sermon. Truth is truth. There's no sense reinventing the wheel, Mr. Moon says. If you've got something that a, well, that's a good product, why go out and beat your head against the wall and try to come up with it yourself? There are other and that's, uh, there are other sites where you can download sermons. I'm giving these to you just in case you want to use them. SermonCentral.com, Pastors.com, SermonSpice.com, and DesperatePreacher.com. Here's another money quote from the article. The widespread buying of packaged sermons has touched off a debate about ethics, especially after incidents in which pastors have resigned over plagiarism allegations. Some members of the clergy say sermon sales diminish religious oratory and undermine both scholarship and the trust between ministers and their flocks. So what would you say, before I read any more of this, what would you say if you found out that I was downloading my sermons every Saturday night and delivering somebody else's sermon? Linda? A good way to raise money? Oh, for me to sell my sermons? (laughs) Not selling sermons, that's a different issue. I'm all in favor of that. No, I'm not. Creators.com, a non-profit corporation owned by Fellowship Church, which is Ed Young's church, has posted revenue of $1.7 million since January 2004 and has 17,500 accounts, according to the church's pastor. SermonCentral.com is considered the biggest and posts more than 80,000 free sermons, anecdotes, and dramas and gets 170,000 visits each week, according to the site. Bruce Blatt's one of Mr. Moon's congregants in Land Lakes, Florida, says he doesn't mind if his pastor preaches the words of others sometimes, but, Mr. Blatt says, he needs to be able to have some originality. Yeah, that's a very good point, right? Thomas just held up his Bible. Is anything that I preach original? You better hope it's not. You better hope that nothing I say is original. Because you're in trouble, I'm in trouble, we're all in big trouble if I come up with something original. Every preacher stands on the shoulders of great men who have gone before. And ultimately, you can trace back those great men to Jesus and the apostles and the prophets. And that's it. And we all stand on their shoulders. There really is truly nothing original. Okay. I'm not even going to get into the, the debate about the ethics of downloading sermons or not. I think that it would be unethical to sell a sermon that other people can download because I, then I think you're selling plagiarism. If you sell a sermon that other people can download and preach as their own, you're basically encouraging sell, uh, plagiarism and the lack of originality, and you are encouraging pastors to be lazy, and you are encouraging, encouraging pastors to feed their people truth that has not impacted their own hearts, and then you're profiting off of that. And I think it is unethical to download a sermon and to... Uh, preach it. Uh, preach a sermon that is not your own, that somebody else does, and to preach it as if it is your own. And that's not that. I don't think it's unethical to quote somebody. You've heard me do that, or to use an illustration somebody else uses. Uh, I don't think that those are unethical practices. But the content of the truth and the message of the message itself should be something that comes through my heart and my personality, my giftedness, my walk with God, my walk with Christ, and it should be run through that mill first before it is ever fed to you. And if it's not, then it's not preaching. That's not preaching. Preaching is me taking truth and grinding it through my personality and giving it to you, the overflow of what I have enjoyed in God's Word, and you benefit from that. And if it doesn't go through that process, then it's not it's not preaching. It's something else. 
Jenny, question? That's right. And that is one of the things that, and, and we're talking about this in just a second, actually, um, Jenny brings up a good point. You can use other sermons uh, for research purposes, which I have done. I'll tell you this, if, if Charles Spurgeon has preached on that text, I read Spurgeon's sermon or try to. Sometimes he has three or four sermons on a text, but I try and read Charles Spurgeon's sermons before I preach a sermon. Not because I'm borrowing from Spurgeon, but because Spurgeon is a quote mine. You can always find a good quote from Spurgeon that'll fit with something that you're doing. And a lot of times, his way of handling the text or his language or something that he brings out in the text, it's just like a commentary. All of Martin Lloyd-Jones is, Martin Lloyd-Jones never wrote any commentaries. All he has is published sermons. So you read a book of Martin Lloyd-Jones that deals with the text, you're reading his sermon in a transcript. And that's completely legitimate, as long as you don't get up and you deliver it as if it is your own, when in fact it is not. Okay, so what is the process of sermon preparation? It begins with a preparation or a step of preparation. Before you ever get into producing a sermon or writing a sermon, it begins with preparation, and whole Sunday school classes could be taught on this. There has to be prayer that goes into that. Um, There has to be humility that goes into that and self-examination that goes into that. You have to prepare in the sense of selecting a text, and I, I would like to spend more time on the, the prayer and the humility and the self-examination aspect of it, but we can set that aside for another time. I'm talking about the mechanics right now. Um, that, that's, that element of self-preparation has to be there. As you begin, you realize that I'm walking on holy ground. I'm about to take God's word and have the responsibility in seven days of delivering this to God's people. So what must happen in my own heart? In my The prayer of every true preacher is that the truth that he is about to study would flow through him and sanctify him before he ever has a chance to deliver it to somebody else. So there's self-preparation and self-examination, prayer. You need to find a passage or a text, which seems obvious. You'd be surprised at how many pastors will find a good sermon and then they go search for a text that goes with it. That is backwards. The sermon is birthed out of the text, not you come up with a great illustration. Now I just need to find a text for this illustration. And that's the temptation always. I got a good story. I got a good anecdote. I got a good sermon, a great outline. I just need to find a text that will fit this. And that is basically what a topical sermon is. Uh, not all topical sermons are that, but most topical sermons are, I have a topic, now I need to find a text that speaks to this topic. That's wrong entirely. This begins with the wrong foundation. The first foundation is, what is my text? And that part of my preparation is easy because what text are we in? John 10, right? And so I always know what the next text is going to be. That's one of the benefits that's one of the many benefits of starting at the beginning of the book and going through the end of the book, is I always know what my next text is going to be. And it might be one verse, might be ten verses, whatever that next chunk is going to be. That's my text. So I've got that text. The second step is then is what I do with the text. So with the text in front of me, the very first thing that I do is I outline the text. I grab subordinate clauses and I place them below the verbs or the nouns that they modify. I pull it apart. I, I, I basically I have sort of a structure, and I meant to bring like all of these things to show you. I have a, the passage itself is outlined with everything which is subordinate or explains something else down and indented. You know what I'm talking about by outlining stuff? So that I can see the flow of the passage and I know, okay, when are we, when are we coming back? And I can see it in my pick, in my mind's eye, how the passage itself is structured. Then I sit down with that outline and I have a blue pen and a red pen and a pencil and a couple of highlighters on my desk. And I sit down with that and I highlight all of the words that are repeated. And I'm looking for things in the text which indicate to me the meaning of the text. And all the while that I'm doing this, um, all, and I'm doing this at the beginning of the week. This is the very first step. Well, I should back up and say something else I do with the text. One of the things that I do is I read and I reread and I reread and I re-re-re-re-read the text all the time. All week long, I do this. 
before I ever preached the Gospel of John, I read through the Gospel of John, I'm going to guess, probably 30 times in preparing to preach the Gospel of John. I get done with my Bible reading for the year at the usually the end of November, and then for the month of December, I pick one book and I do it over and over and over again. I think it was two years in a row, knowing that I was going to preach on the Gospel of John, that I spent the entire month of December reading five to seven chapters of John every day for the whole month of December, and just going over it and over it and over it again. And then, while I'm going through the Gospel of John, as I'm reading through the Bible, I'm reading through the entire Gospel of John once a year. And then the passage that, and I zero it in a little bit closer, the passage that I'm preaching on now, I will go back every couple of weeks and I will read John maybe 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, or 7 to 11, or something like that that kind of deals with this whole context. I'm reading it over and over so that I'm familiar, not just with the two or three verses that I'm covering, but with everything that surrounds it, for the purpose of making sure that if I say something is true, or something applies in verse 17, that I'm not surprised when I get to verse 23 that, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Now that overturns everything I said five verses ago. I want to make sure that that never happens. So I'm always reading and rereading the context. And then sometimes I memorize the text as well. I try and memorize as much of the text as I can before I preach it. Now my friend Brian Atmore would say that's easy to do when you only preach one verse or two verses a week. It's easy to memorize the text, but when you're like him and you preach 15 verses a week, it's much more challenging to memorize the text that you're preaching from. But that's my goal, to memorize just even through studying it and hearing it again and again as much of the text as I can. So that by the time I get to the end of the chapter, I pretty much know in my mind what different verses are at and where the transitions are at and and a lot of the wording of the text. So you would think then that I have John 1 through 10 memorized, right? But I don't because I don't go back and I review those. I memorize them and then they're like college exam question answers. They just go right out my head as fast the next week. Okay, so that's what I do with the text, and then I do in the text what's called observation, and I'm just going to walk you through basically an inductive Bible study method. With with the text, you do observation, interpretation, application. So observation is the is the process of just asking questions of the text. So the text is before me, the outline is before me, and then these are the things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for specifically words and phrases which might be repeated. So in the Gospel of John, for instance, you see the word belief, you see the word eternal life, you see the words um, light, and truth, these are things that are repeated. Some passages, they're, they're crammed in here. You see these words or phrases that are repeated so often, like in John 5, Jesus being sent by the Father. That is something that's mentioned a dozen times in John 5. So in my Bible and in the text, I have highlighted all of the words sent, everywhere that the word sent appears. And then a lot of times I will take that and I will make sure I'm connecting it to things in the immediate context. When he talks about sent here, who is he talking about having sent him? And what is he sent to do? Does he specify why he was sent or when he was sent or who sent him? or where he was sent. These are things that I'm looking for with words that are repeated over and over again. Sometimes repeated words are keys. They, well, not sometimes. All the time, repeated words are keys to the author's intended meaning. He's repeating something because he, he wants us to catch on to something. So he's, he's developing a theme. And I'm looking for that repeated word, not just in that text, those two, three verses that I'm looking at, or six verses that I might be studying, but is that repeated word before this in the passage or after this in the passage or in the next chapter or two chapters later when a similar event is going on. That's what I'm looking for, repeated words or repeated phrases. Also, I look for a change in words. Uh, The author might say, um, the author might use two different words which can, synonyms that can be translated the same way. And sometimes those two synonyms, the change of one word to the next in the text is just to avoid the repetition sounding of using the same word all the time. You and I do this from time to time. We use synonyms when we're talking about something, not because we're changing the meaning 
or we're trying to bring out something different, but because we're just trying to avoid using the same word every time. Sometimes authors do that. Sometimes a change in word indicates something significant, something theologically significant, or a play on words that the author is trying to bring out. And you got to look for those things. Dave? Yeah, I would. Uh, that's a good question. In the Gospel of John, would I go into Matthew, Mark, and Luke? John is so unique that it doesn't play in much. But what I do do uh, is when I'm in John and, and we're beginning the next section or there's a break in time, I will go back in my own mind and fill in what happened during that break in time from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I get a chronology of events so that I can see how that has led up to now what we're starting in John. And if there is parallel incidences like the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 and the walking on water, if there are parallel accounts of things like that in John, I will go read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I do that much later um, after I've done a lot of observation in the text because I want to see, okay, how do these gospel writers communicate this and did they did they portray something unique here that John is not focusing on but this gospel writer is trying to bring out so it's it's kind of a good it's like reading a commentary but it's God's commentary on that same event or that same passage okay I'm also looking for things that indicate information that I can glean from the background the names of people places things uh, historical incidences things that have happened people are coming into this narrative um, I look for cross-references from other passages as I'm studying a passage, pulling all this part and observing it, asking questions. I'm writing down all my observations. You know, uh, John says this, and look, look at this in the text. This is the first time he mentions this. And I have a, a, a legal pad like this that I write just a list, one, two, three, four, five, of all the observations that I'm making, things I'm noticing in the text. Some of them are totally insignificant. Some of them are really significant, and they pay off gold later on. But I don't know that. I'm just observing what I'm finding in the text. I'm also looking for things that, we might expect to be in the text, but are not. And by that, I don't mean things that I want to see there. I mean things that I, I try and picture myself this event unfolding. And I think, now, if I were seeing this unfold, what, what, what might I expect to be present there that would make sense of this, but that's not mentioned by the author? And sometimes that kind of helps you fill in a little bit of the gaps around it. Um, sometimes, it's, sometimes it can be significant to notice something that is not there or is not said that you and I might expect to be said. Right? Jesus says something and then somebody else says this, and we might have expected them to say this. Why would they say that? That's weird. I mean, if I were in his position, I would have thought this. Right? But why did this individual say that? You know, spend some time meditating on it. And then I also look for puzzling or... Uh, enigmatic things in the text, things that Jesus says or other people says or way of phrasing things, I think, okay, that's a little unclear, at least to my ears, what that might mean. And I take a note of those things. Right? I need to study this phrase. What does this phrase mean? What was he referring to here? What are the possibilities? And then as I go through that, I, I try and think, okay, okay, so he could mean this, he could mean this, and he could mean that. So what are what are the reasons, which one of these would weigh hev- most heavily from the context, where the context determines what that text means and what he might be talking about or not talking about. And so I I weigh each of those and they're trying to come up with um, what do I suspect from the context the answer to this dilemma or this question is. Now, I have done all of this before I have ever consulted any other resource, any other writer on the subject, because I want my own study to be producing the fruit of my own observations in my mind. Okay, The goal of this is to get to the intended meaning of the text and to know the meaning of the text. And before you ever begin sermon preparation or designing a lesson, if this is what you would do with this information, design a, say, say a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study lesson, you want to be able to be able to state in one sentence or two sentences the meaning of this text. And it should be so clear in your mind that you can say, this text means this. And I can tell you in a couple of sentences the meaning of the text. You have to know that. 
And you have to be convinced of it. And you have to be able to have that as a package in, in your mind that this is what this text means. This is what is being talked about. This is what the author is saying about what is being talked about. Here's the information that is all contained, and I can state that in one sentence. Most preaching teachers would call that the main idea or the big idea. What's the big idea of the text? If I boil this whole sermon down to one sentence, what would it be? And sometimes that is easy to put into words. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, because of lack of time, I skip that state, that step. Not that I can't communicate it, but I, I skip the step of condensing this down into its irreducible minimum for the sake of clarity. But I think I can still clearly communicate the text. But I, I have to arrive at the meaning of the text. Not what do I think it means, because you shouldn't care a whit what I think it means, and I don't care what, what you think the text means. The only thing that anybody should ever care about is what did the person who wrote that text, what was he saying? Not what do I think he was saying, not what does it mean to me, but what was he saying? When Paul wrote those words, what was his intended meaning? What was he communicating to his audience? You have to arrive at that before you can move on. Any questions before we get to the next step? That's that's what we call the historical context, right? We want to when you're interpreting a passage, you want to avoid what's called an anachronism. An anachronism is taking something that makes sense years later and plugging that into the text in order to make sense of that text. That's an anachronism. If you see some, if you see a movie of on, like say you're watching the Bible miniseries, um, and you're seeing Jesus and the disciples there, and one of the guys walking down the road and he's got a watch on, that's an anachronism, right? That's something from a later period of time that occurs in that passage. It's the same thing. People do this all the time, and and if I had taken some time, I could have come up with some examples of this. But this is a common mistake that people make in interpreting scripture. They they take maybe something that makes sense from years later and they plug it back into the meat of the text in order to make sense of the text. Um, and that's a wrong way. That's a, that's a mistake or a, a fallacy of Bible interpretation to avoid anachronisms. So you do that by studying the history and the context and the culture and what these words meant in their original context. Words, word chain, meanings of words change over time, right? I was listening to a song on my phone while I was getting ready this morning and I forget what the name of the song was, but the, it said something about uh, why do the birds sing so gay or whatever that. And I forget what the, it was like an oldies song, 60s or whatever. Why do the birds sing so gay? And Liam was in there and he said, I think I shouldn't be hearing this song. And I said, no, no, no. The word, <laughs> the word gay meant something different when that song was written than it means today, right? So it, that's anachronism to take a current meaning of the word gay and plug it back into a 1950s or 60s song when they use the word gay in an entirely different way. Right? You do the same thing, and people can do the same thing in Bible study. This Greek word meant this. Like dunamis is a perfect example. That's the word from which we get our word dynamite. No, it's not. The word didn't mean dynamite. It didn't mean anything to do with dynamite. That's a, that's a, that's a modern day understanding of that concept or idea that you plug back into the text. It's an exegetical fallacy. And to do that is to take something that would have never occurred to the mind of the author and plug it into that text and make them say that when that's not what they said. So that you got to avoid that. And this gets into which the second step is, is interpretation. So we've got observation and then interpretation. Interpretation is coming up with the meaning of the text. And then once you think you have arrived at the meaning of the text, I, I go through, or you should go through, what is called a hermeneutical spiral. That sounds very complex. It sounds really technical. It's not really. It basically means this. You think of, of, of a spiral going down, and you're getting to something at the bottom, so it's like a funnel spiral. A hermeneutical spiral is you have what you think is the meaning. So you have meaning here, and you have observations and information here you take that meaning and you run it back through the observations and say 
Does this meaning stand up against everything that I have observed in the text? Or is there something about what I think the text means that doesn't quite fit things that I'm observing here? Right? Once I run it back through there, then I come up with, okay, I've refined my meaning. Now I'm going to run that through the observations again and see if it stands up. And then it, it might need to be refined a little bit. Well, you might not be talking about that. Looking again at all the data that I have brought together and what I have studied and found out, he might be meaning something like this. So you go back and back through that until your meaning passes all of your observations without any problems. That's a hermeneutical spiral. All you're doing is you're going from meaning to observations, meaning to observations, until you have refined the meaning down to what you are convinced that scriptural text is teaching. Now, then I check that against the local context. Right? So I come up with a meaning. I take what I have come up. Now, what I've done, what we've done is we've gone down really deep into the passage to this microcosm or almost an atomic level. Then we're going to back up. That's what I do. I back up and I say, okay, does this, does my observations here and my understanding of what's happening here, does this fit with the flow of the passage in this whole chapter? Or the argument that the, the author is making from chapter seven, right? If I see something happening with the blind man in chapter nine, am I, am I understanding this? Is it going to contradict something that I've already seen in the larger context? So I back up to the larger context and then I might back out and zoom out again to the context of the whole book. Am I understanding John to say something here that is different than what he is saying elsewhere? This would be like the abundant life thing that we talked about last week, right? There's a reason I took you through chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the references to life. And then I asked you, do you think when he talks about abundant life that he's describing something different than he has been describing for nine and a half chapters? And I could tell from the, 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 the expression of people's faces that they were like, no, it's, it's obviously the same thing. And that was a revelation for some of us. And it had to be because we might take the, the term abundant life and think that it means something. But when we back up to all that John has said about this subject, we realize he's not talking about some super spiritual level of life. He's talking about the same life that he's described for 21 chapters. It is life. And this is another way of describing that life. And that you arrive at that conclusion by backing up out of the context. Now, if I had backed up and said, okay, hold on. I've come to an understanding of abundant life that doesn't seem to fit with everything John says around it. Then I have to zoom back in and go through that hermeneutical spiral again, the observations, and make sure that I got it all right. And then I back even further out to the context of that author. Does John say something here that he contradicts in 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John? And then I back out even further to the context of the Testament. Do I say see something in this text that contradicts something I observe in another epistle? Are there other passages that would refute my understanding of this text? And then I back out to the understanding of the entire Bible itself. Is there anything in all 66 books of the Bible that would contradict or overturn what I am suggesting the author is meaning in this passage? And if at any time I come up with something where I say, well, this author doesn't agree with it, John doesn't agree with what Paul wrote here, then I have come to a misunderstanding of that text of Scripture. Everybody understand that process so far? Now, sometimes that can take days. right? There are some, there are some subjects where that takes a long period of time. There are, there are some texts and sermons where that's easy it takes a matter of minutes because it's so simple it's so straightforward that a lot of labor in this is not done and the good news is the more somebody does this the easier it gets and the more efficient they get it used to be that i would spend 60 hours a week preparing a sermon way more than 40 i mean it was it was a ton of time now i can do a sermon in much less time not because i'm kind of taking shortcuts but because i my the one hour what one hour of study the fruit that one hour of study used to yield 10 years ago one hour of study will yield three times that fruit now. But yeah, my process hasn't changed, but I, I become much more efficient at observing things than I used to be and understanding things. And because my understanding grows, this whole process becomes easier 
as not not because you get just better at doing it and taking shortcuts, but just because it becomes more natural. And and more knowledge adds to that as well, yeah. And more experience of okay, well, you know, here I see this, I see the same pattern, and now I can think of other books that I preached on where the same thing was talked about, and here's how that author said it. All right, so that's interpretation. And then I check against, then after I have done that, then I check what I have discovered or studied against what other people have said about it. So I might read, that's when I read commentaries. And that's when I pick up, and I usually have three or four good commentaries. And the purpose of going through a commentary is so that I can double check to make sure that I have not arrived at some truth that nobody else has noticed for 2,000 years. And if I have come up with something that I think is true that nobody else has noticed for 2,000 years, I'll tell you what, I'm very hesitant to say anything about it because, and, and I question it. There are times when I can't find, I, I, th- I see something and I think, you know, I, I'm, I've noticed something in this passage that none of my other commentaries have mentioned. That doesn't mean nobody else has ever mentioned, it just means that the four or five books that I've read haven't mentioned it. But if I see something in the text that I think is legitimate and there's nothing that contradicts it, then I'm fine with bringing that out and, and, ob- and showing it as an observation to you. And oftentimes you'll hear me say, this is speculation, but, I want you to know that this is what I'm seeing here. Nobody else has seen this. Nobody else, at least that I've seen, has, has mentioned this, but this is something that I see in the text, and I think it's it's worth noting. So, and I check it by commentaries, and then I read, of course, another sermon like by by Spurgeon or something, somebody else like that, or Martin Lloyd-Jones, to see how they handle the text. And in doing that, I'm not looking for an outline. Uh, I'm not looking for a sermon format. I'm just wanting to know how did they address this? What did this guy see as the central theme of this passage? And how did he handle it? How did he get about exposing that? And in doing that, I'm, sometimes I will find good quotes. Sometimes I find good illustrations. Sometimes I find good anecdotes or parallels in Scripture. Or they'll remind me of an Old Testament passage where this is this you see this truth worked out in an Old Testament passage. And I think, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I remember the story of that and how that illustrates this. Tim did this a few weeks ago, last time he preached with the book of Amos. Uh, it was two times ago when you went through all of the nations. And you said, you remember how Tim did this? All of the nations that were under judgment... He gave an Old Testament example of how the children of Israel had done battle with or had issues with that nation, as he talked about each one. You remember the story of so-and-so? Well, that was this nation. Remember the story of so-and-so? That was this nation. And so a lot of times in handling an Old Testament, or uh, in looking at a commentary, I am looking for ways that they illustrate that truth, which can be very powerful, that maybe I haven't thought of. And in the process of doing all of this, I have had, in my own mind, usually, my own illustrations or things that are coming to the surface, and I'm constantly jotting those down. So last week when I preached, I was constantly jotting down uh, ways that people describe or think of abundant life which are not true. And I was jotting those down all week long, putting them into categories and coming up with ways to describe that or illustrations of that. And I was keeping that on a piece of paper as well because I knew that I'm going to have a a chunk in the message where I'm going to bring in this piece of paper. So that's the interpretation. Then the next thing I do is I... Outline the message, and that is I come up with an outline, a preachable outline. Uh, usually my three points or two things that I want to bring out or, or three truths that I see that we want to handle, and I kind of come up with an outline, I, and I put together subpoints. The next step is to take the, the outline itself, and I, I do what I call fleshing out the outline, and I have a, a piece of 11, uh, 11 by 17 piece of paper that's folded in half, and it's two sides, and it's really small lines, four columns on those two, one big sheet of paper, and I put each point at the top of one of those columns, and then underneath those columns, I put, I write down the cross-references, illustrations, anecdotes, uh, a story, a joke, a statistic, or some subject that I want to bring out that fits. And all I'm doing there is I'm taking my skeleton of what I've come up with from my study, and I'm just taking all of the observations, cross-references, 
Old Testament stories, illustrations, everything, and I'm just, I'm just putting, I'm just hanging that meat on the bones of the sermon. And then I take that outline, that flesh of an outline, and I, then I manuscript. And so I type out about 5,000 words, uh, 14 pages, space and a half of 10 point font with a kind of wider margins. I type out that manuscript of my introduction, my passage, my, uh, my exposition, and my conclusion. I type all of that out uh, word for word, just as I would expect to hear myself preaching it. So it's very conversational. My, my manuscripts do not read like a commentary on a subject. They're not even a glorified outline. It is paragraph format, how I would expect to hear myself preach this. If I had my way and I stood up there and I delivered this sermon and somebody transcribed it word for word, this is how I would want it to sound. Then I take my manuscript, and from that, I put together usually a half sheet, something like this size, of notes that contains sometimes the outline points, but most of the time it is simply a passage that I'm going to quote that I haven't memorized, a cross-reference, or a list of passages where I'm I'm reading from other passages I haven't memorized, or a quote from somebody that I haven't memorized. Uh, All of that stuff goes on one piece of paper that I have in the pulpit with me. Then I take my manuscript. I read that uh, when I'm done. When I'm done with my manuscript, you hopefully Thursday at noon, I put it in a file, and I don't touch it again until Saturday morning. And the purpose of that is to purge my head. Then I go back on uh, Saturday evening or afternoon, and I take that manuscript and I start reading through it. And hopefully it sounds good still, and it doesn't need to be revised. But um, if it doesn't sound good, then I start kind of cutting stuff out with a pencil or a pen. But if it does sound okay to me, sometimes this is really weird. Sometimes when I get done with my manuscript on Thursday, and manuscripting is about a six-hour process, when I get done with my manuscript on Thursday at noon, on Saturday night when I pick up that manuscript, I have a kind of a challenge where I think, okay, what was my introduction again? Can I remember what I had done? And a lot of times I cannot remember what it was that I was going to use to introduce the sermon or how I was going to start the sermon. Or I can't even remember my outline because I, I purposely do not think of it for a day and a half. And then I take that manuscript, and I read it over and over on Saturday night, and I write down in the margins of my manuscript keywords next to every paragraph, two or three or four or five per page, and that kind of helps me remember the flow of it, and I go over and over and over and over that manuscript as many times as I can before I get up and preach on Sunday morning so that I have, now I have arrived at the meaning of the text, I have an idea of how I'm handling the text, I know what my illustrations, my applications are, and I got a good idea of the flow of the whole message, and then I get up with only my piece of paper, without my manuscript, and I preach the message. So that is the process of sermon preparation. I understand the desire, and this is a style thing. Some people can have a full manuscript, and they deliver their sermon so well with a full manuscript in front of them that you can't tell that they have done, they're doing this off of a manuscript. Some guys have a, a detailed outline in front of them, and you never see anything but the top of their head. And there's a there's a difference between that. I feel much better about listening to somebody preach who is not tied to their notes. I'm not opposed to notes because I bring some notes into the pulpit with me. But if I can, my goal is to preach a a message without any notes in front of me, without any manuscript in front of me, nothing but my Bible and the text. That's my goal. I'm not always able to achieve that, but I think that's the ultimate goal. And I think there's a number of things that are communicated by somebody who talks to you without constantly looking down at their notes. It is. There's something about... Yeah. If you, and, and I liken it to this, I've used this illustration before. If you went into a brain surgeon and you sat down and you said, look, you've got a tumor on your brain and we're going to remove it. You said, well, 
Doc, tell me what that involves. And he said, okay, let me get out my notes. First thing we're going to do is we're going to cut open, we're going to cut open your head. And he can't tell you any step of that process without using his notes. You're going to find a different brain surgeon, aren't you? Because you're going to be convinced that that guy does not know what he's talking about well enough to explain that process to you without the help of a piece of paper. So my goal is to be able to preach every message without notes because I want to know the content of that passage and the explanation of that passage so clearly in my own mind, and that's the process of manuscripting, that I can get up and I can explain it to you without a single note. I can step up onto a roof and I can show you how to do almost any roof in any situation from with a comp or a metal roof. I can explain to you how to put that on without a single note in front of me because I know how to roof. And I don't need notes to explain that to you. And the goal is to know the passage of Scripture so well that you can explain it to people without any notes. And that's why I seek to be note-free. I don't want to be tied to it, and I want you to feel like when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you. I'm not reading to you something that hasn't impacted me. Jenny? Good question. How do I keep track of all that stuff? Well, it's all in electronic form because I, I have all my text outlines and my manuscripts. I save all of those. I take all of that and I put it into one file folder and I save it on the cloud in the Internet somewhere or I put it on a CD or a disc or I store it on my computer. So all of my notes. And now because of technology, every sermon that I've ever preached, I have on a thumb drive. I back it up every week. I take that thumb drive with me to church, away from church, to work, away from work, on vacation. Everywhere I go, the thumb drive goes. Everything I've ever preached is on that one piece of memory. So I store it that way. All the stuff that I write down, all my manuscripts and my outlines and my observations and everything, I put those in a stack next to my desk and I hand them to Marsha and she puts them in some sort of a file folder binder thing and, and stores them in a file cabinet somewhere and that's where they go. So there are file cabinets with just, I mean, the book of Acts is seriously this much paper. That's three and a half years and the book of John is almost that as much. Yeah, so it's, now the book of John is smaller because now I'm printing on both sides of the piece of paper so it's, it's about half the size. Yeah, and that's the practical part of doing that, of manuscripting, is I've gone back and tried to preach sermons that I preached years ago, like from Ecclesiastes, and I look at my notes, this is before I was manuscript, and it'll say, airplane illustration. Airplane illustration. What in the world was, or the dog doing a trick illustration. What, what was the dog doing a trick illustration? I don't remember what that was. I have no idea what that was. And so the the benefit of it is that I can say to myself, I remember that quote from Spurgeon. It was in John... Four, I quoted Spurgeon about the woman at the well. He was talking about belief, and I remember it was a rich quote. I can go back and get that. Because I, I tie, that's how I tie, tie things in my own mind. Then I can go back and I can search through the manuscripts for a word, Spurgeon, and bring up a quote relatively easy by doing that. That's the benefit of storing the volumes of stuff that you have. I don't have to flip through everything. I can just search it electronically. Okay, I'm over time like Brian, so we are done. One question, this is it. What are the Atmores doing? They are living in Creston right now, and Brian does teaching and preaching once in a while at different locations. Yeah, they're still in Creston. No. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this time, and we it is our desire to glorify you through the teaching of your word in every venue and every way, and we are thankful for what you do in your word to equip us as saints to do the work of the ministry, to, to give to you obedience and love. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would keep us all faithful to your word, faithful to the truth and to the text, and may the text to be king in all that we do so that we are subservient and servants to it and that none of us ever thinks that we stand above your word and in authority over your word, but we are all in authority under it. We thank you for these things and we are grateful for the time that we've had this morning. We pray your continued blessing upon the worship services to follow and the preaching of your word.
that you'd see fit to glorify yourself and edify and equip your people. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.